them. They ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. Which is kind of funny because when you think about all the things that they could have asked Jesus, they chose prayer. They, they didn't ask Jesus to define and expand upon some of those deeper teachings such as the Trinity, which are all good and, and found within his teachings. They didn't ask him to you know, open up some of his more perplexing teachings and explain that. What they did was in response to what Jesus said about God and himself, as we see in Luke 11, they ask him explicitly, teach us to pray. Now, no doubt they asked him to teach him other things, and that's just not recorded for us, and, and they did ask him to explain some of his parables in more depth because they were kind of confused, but they focused on this one aspect, teach us to pray. And I think it's most likely recorded for us of these disciples asking Jesus this question because prayer is so vital to the Christian life. Prayer is central to who we are. For Christians believe that we are now part of God's family, that we have unfettered access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, and so we have the privilege, the honor, to actually commune, talk to the Almighty Father, that we can pray to Him. Martin Luther, the great reformer, is attributed to saying, to be a Christian without prayer is, more, is no more possible to be alive without breathing. What he's saying there is that prayer is so vital to a Christian's life that we expect it to be life-giving. It's a sign of a Christian's life in Christ is that they pray to God. It's like breathing. It sustains us. It keeps us going. That doesn't mean that prayer isn't hard. For if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know sometimes prayer can be hard. Sometimes we can feel distracted or we can we feel disconnected or dry and we struggle to pray as we should. But we know that this is something we should fight for, fight to pray as we're supposed to pray. And when we come to Genesis chapter 32, we see Jacob and we see Jacob in prayer. A prayer to God, wrestling with God. And so if you have your books, uh, your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 32 as we read this chapter together. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 1, says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which just means two camps. And so we got to remember where Jacob is. He has just left Laban. He had made a covenant with Laban. They're not going to fight. And so Jacob's going on his way, and he sees God's angels. And it's significant because right before uh, Jacob, right when Jacob left his home country and was headed towards Laban, he had seen God's angels. And now he sees God's angels again. And so we see Jacob understanding that God is with him here. And so he sees a camp of angels, and he sees his own camp, and so he names his place two camps, my camp and God's camp. And it continues, it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Syria, to the uh, country of Edom, instructing them, This you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus say your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I've sent them to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We come 
to your, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided people who were with him into flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob is headed back to his hometown, his home country, and he knows his brother awaits, and so he sends messengers to tell Esau, hey, I'm coming back into the region, and the messengers come back, and they say, he's coming, your brother's coming, and he's got 400 men with him. 400 is, is around the number that kingdoms would keep for the militia. And so when Jacob hears that, he hears Jacob's coming, and he's coming with his posse. He's coming with his fighting men to meet you. Esau, did I mess up the... Well, that's, they're easy to mess up. So Esau is coming with his fighting men. And so Jacob is distressed and afraid. We've got to remember, Abraham defeated like five armies just with 300 men. And here comes Esau with 400 fighting men, and Jacob is distressed and afraid. And he's like, well... Maybe I'll, I'll put half my possessions here and half here, and maybe I'll have something left after Esau gets done with me. But the story continues, and we see how he should have responded in the first place. In verse 9, it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob responds, to his distress and his fear with maybe how he should have done in the first place. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And if we, we're going to examine this prayer in a little bit, and it's such a rich prayer built on the promises that God had given him, firming him up knowing that God loves him. And the story continues in verse 13. And so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes, ewes and 20 rams, thinking uh, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where, do you are, where are you going? And whose are those ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent, by my Lord Esau, sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I will see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. 
And so Jacob still is thinking, how can I persuade my brother who is approaching me with 400 fighting men? How can I persuade him? I mean him no harm. Well, I'll repay him the birthright I stole from him. So here we go. How about you take all these camels, these donkeys, these milking uh, camels and these these rams and all the flocks I have, take them as a gift. And you can kind of see how he sets it up. He says, hey, one drove go, give some space, let another drove go, so that when Esau receives them, he's like, wow, this is a lot. And then there's some, some space so he can process, oh, wow, this is a lot. All of this is for me. And now Jacob, the reassurance that Jacob is following behind. For the first time in Jacob's life, he does not want to be first. He actually is going to be last because he wants all these presents to get to Esau to appease him before he comes. And so he stays where he is that night. And it says, The same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and set them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? <clears throat> and he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the suin of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob wrestled with God and yet prevailed. And so what can we learn from this account? This actually pretty crazy account of Jacob wrestling God, maybe the most well-known story of Jacob's whole life. Why well, I think we can learn this, and that's wrestle God in prayer to be blessed. For this is one of the craziest accounts we come to about Jacob and his, his life, and it becomes his identity that he actually wrestled with God, that his name is changed, that he would now forever be known as Israel, the one who has striven with God, strived with God, and yet prevailed, yet persevered, and yet is blessed because of that. That he is wrestling with God and yet lives. And we're called to wrestle with God as well, not physically, I don't think we're ever going to be in a physical match with the, the angel of the Lord, with God, or else we'll be all walking around with limps like Jacob. But we're called to wrestle with God in prayer. Because when we go to God in prayer, what we're doing is we're kind of taking our desires, our wants, our dreams, and we're actually submitting them to God. And he will press upon us his will, his plan, his desires for our life through his word, and he will make us who he wants us to be. And so we're called to wrestle with God and respond to what he shows us through his words and we'll be blessed as we realize that he is God and we are not. 
We'll be blessed as we realize that we don't have control of our life, but he has control of our life. We'll be blessed as we realize that we don't get to define who we are. God defines who we are. And that we are brought to that submission all through prayer. Wrestle God in prayer to be blessed. But let's look at this account and see how we can learn from Jacob wrestling with God. The setting of this account is basically that there's, there's two camps. There's two meetings that are about to take place. That one is, in, uh, is uh, instigated by God and initiated by God that Jacob actually meets with God. And the other one is the one that he's afraid of is meeting with his older brother Esau. And this is a setting that uh, sets up this whole chapter that Jacob is coming home and yet he knows his brother awaits him and his brother's not happy with him. What's interesting, though, if, if you look at the geography of the land and where Jacob is coming from and where Esau has settled, Esau has settled out in Edom, which is more to the east, and Jacob is kind of heading down the, going, sort of head down the coast to the west. And yet he makes probably an intentional choice to head to where his brother is to reconcile with his brother. He could have this skirted around his brother and gone back home, gone back to the safety of Isaac, who's still alive at this point. But he chose to reconcile with his brother because he knows maybe I'll bump into this guy who last I heard wants to kill me. And we see a progress in Jacob's life that he's willing actually to make amends for past actions. And he's willing to reconcile with his brother. And so he's heading for this trip, even though he's afraid of what might happen. And when he's setting out, he sees the angels of God, as we said. And he named that place the two camps. What he sees is the fact that God is with him, that the angels of God are with him, that when Jacob was leaving his hometown in the first place and he took that nap on the, on the rock and he saw the angels ascending and descending of, to God and he knew God was with him, it was the presence of God that actually was with him when he was in Haran with Laban. And now when he's leaving, God shows him his angels again to show him, I am still with you. I still care for you. I'm still bringing you through. And that whatever you're going to face, even if you're going to face your brother who wants to kill you, I am with you. And this is a testimony again and again that the angels of God, their presence, show that God is there as well, and God's protection is there as well. This is why we read in Psalm 91:11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Or Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. This is the promise that Jacob is relying on that the angels of the Lord are now encamping around him, around him, and that when he meets Esau, there is a bigger meeting that defines his life, and that's the meeting with God, that God is present. We see something that we need to find relevant here as well, to be reminded of and to remember every single day, and that is God is always with us. Now, we might not see the angels encamped around us as Jacob saw, but God is always with us. That there's not a moment in our days, there's not a circumstance that we go through, there's not a single second where God is not with us. 
that God is not protecting us, that God is not guiding our life, that God is not bringing us about to where he wants us to go, that God is always present and he's always working for our good, that we who know Jesus Christ know that he has already sent his son to die for us. And so we should not fear anything else because we know he's providing for us and bringing us where we go. Like this God who cannot be stopped, he cannot be conquered, he cannot, his will cannot be thwarted. This God is with us and he has a plan for us and he's going to carry it about to completion. And so we trust that God is with us and knowing that God is with us helps us to go to him in prayer, helps us to recognize that he's so close, closer than we even realize, waiting to hear from us. That's one of the great things I love about this passage is that we see Jacob go to the Lord in prayer. A straight up, simple, streamlined prayer because he was distressed. He was anxious. He was worried about what would happen tomorrow when he met his brother. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer. And I love, I love how you can trace the movements of Jacob's prayer. And it can teach us how we need to pray. That Jacob starts off remembering who God is. He gets adoration, praise to God. Oh God of my father Abraham and of my father Isaac, this is who you are, the one who has promised my whole family their whole life and has been faithful to them. This is who I know you to be. And yet he grounds it further on the word as he acknowledges the promise of God to always be with him, the promise of God and the call of God that pulled him now from Laban, now back down to his home country. He grounds this prayer first and foremost on the word and the promise of God. But then he confesses, he says, he acknowledges that he's not worthy. He says, I am not worthy of all these blessings that you have given me that you have given me great things, and I did not earn them. It was all through your grace. He acknowledges that he's not worthy of God blessing him, but he's thankful for these blessings, for he goes right into God's provision, that he left home with nothing but a staff. And yet he's returning home with two camps, and acknowledges God has been with him and the provision that God has given him. And then he goes into a supplication of asking of God what to do. He asks for God for protection from Esau because he's scared. He's worried. My brother could hurt me and my children and my wives. He could do damage to me. Please, God, keep harm away from my family, he prays. He admits that he fears his brother. And then he reminds him again, himself again, of God's promise as he ends the prayer. He says, but I remember, God, that you promised that my children will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And if that is true, I know that no harm will come to them, for your promises are true and sure. I love this because we see in Jacob's prayer the great model that we can pray Grounding our prayers in God's word, that everything we pray should be rooted in what God has given us, the truth he's given us in his word. So often, I think when we pray, if you're like me, you might be better than me, but when you're, if you're like me, when we pray, it can be easy to pray off the top of our heads. 
just the things that are going on, the worries we've got going, the, the, the fleeting thoughts that pass our minds. And that's good. We should be praying those things. God honors those prayers because he honors all of our prayers, and he listens to all of our prayers. But so often, if you're like me, you can struggle because you kind of come to the end of like, I don't even know what I should pray anymore. I, I seem to be praying the exact same thing again and again. And I don't know if that's right or if I don't know. I kind of want to progress past it. And you might struggle with that. Well, if you do, Jacob's model of prayer gives you a great answer for it. For when you base your model, your prayer, and in, in, in the word of God and what he has revealed to us, we know what we should pray. He can guide us in what we should pray. That we actually can pray God's word and his promises back to him. And firm up our faith as we go to the Lord in prayer, knowing that he, he has promised these things and they are sure. That one of the great things that can, can revitalize our prayer life is rooting and grounding our prayer in the word of God. That when we ask, hey, how, what should I pray? We open up the word of God and we go to maybe some prayers we know that are in there and they can guide us on how to pray. Or we go to the book of Psalms and these prayers, these worship songs to the Lord, we can let them guide our thoughts and serve as a springboard for our prayers to God and can help us grow in our prayer. For we need to ground our prayers in Scripture. And if you're interested in that, and like, ooh, maybe that would help my life. Maybe that would spur on my prayers. There's a great book. I'm always going to recommend you books. There's great books called Praying the Bible. It's a short book, too, for those who don't like to read. But it basically offers just a great, easy practice of opening up the book of Psalms and using those as a guide to pray to God. You're not limited to the text of the of the word, but it serves as that springboard to lift your eyes past maybe what you're going through, lift your eyes past your routine prayers to the words of God to help us express our needs and our longings to God with his very own words. So if you're just interested in that, I would suggest it because it helps us wrestle God and prayer to be blessed. That when we ground our prayers on the word of God, it helps us approach the throne of grace knowing confidence that he hears us, and that he will respond to us. And then we see in this account, not only in Jacob's great prayer, but we see what I think might be one of the craziest accounts in the whole Bible, Jacob wrestling with God. And I think it's crazy because when you read this, it's, you don't know it's God until Jacob reveals it's God. I love this account. It's so weird how Jacob stays in camp at night. You've got to imagine it's dark. They don't have flashlights. They, he might be around a campfire. Who knows? But he's staying in camp by himself. His wife and his family are on the other side of this forge. And he's, he's probably still praying to God like he records that he was praying to God. And he's wrestling with God already in his mind. And all of a sudden, some guy, maybe he slips into his tent, taps it on his shoulder, and here it's on. A wrestling bout. For what, I don't see any reason. All of a sudden, they start to wrestle. And here is Jacob's wrestling with this guy, and he, he's, kind, he's, he's a struggle all night long. He can't see who this is, but he's wrestling with him, and he knows he's stronger, and he knows he's more powerful. Why? Because the guy just touches his hip, and all of a sudden now is out of socket, and he's going to live the rest of his life limping because God touched him. 
And he's wrestling with God in prayer, and he's, and he's struggling with him, and he says, I want to be blessed. I'm not going to let go of you, he says, until you bless me. And it's easy to read this account. I've read it so, so many times, and I think Jacob is really being like thinking he has the upper hand, that he's going to win. He's holding on to God, and he's, and he's with like domination saying, I'm not going to let go until you give me my blessing I deserve. But thank goodness for other scriptures that show us the truth of where he was. For the prophet Hosea actually interprets this passage for us in Hosea 12.4 when it says, He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. That changes the picture in my mind that Jacob knows he's outmatched. He knows he is going to lose this confrontation. He knows he cannot prevail against God. And yet, with tears in his eyes, weeping, he hung on and said, God, I'm at the end of myself. I cannot do this anymore. My brother's coming and I think he's going to kill me. Please, bless me. He hung on to God and begged him knowing that he brought nothing to the table, knowing that he needed God from his grace, his love, and his mercy to bless him. And God did. I love this account because it's a parable for Jacob's whole life. It explains Jacob's whole life. It really happened, but it describes how Jacob's life had been that Jacob had always been wrestling with God and everyone else. In the womb, he was wrestling with his brother. And he was striving against his brother his whole life in this dominance game. Who's going to get the blessing? Who's going to get the birthright? And Jacob outsmarts him. He tricks and wrestles with his dad to gain the birthright through trickery and scheming. He goes off and has to flee and then fights with his father-in-law for 20 years over wages and what he thinks he deserves. And now he's here by himself and he's wrestling with God. And it's a parable for his life to show us that his whole life, Jacob had not been wrestling with other people, ultimately. His whole life he had been in the grip of God's unrelenting grace and he was wrestling with God. And God was bringing him to the end of himself and to the beginning of what God wants him to be. The father of the nation, Israel. And so God blesses him by giving him that new name, Israel. The name itself, Israel, means God fights or God strives. But in context of Jacob striving against God, there's this wordplay. And it says, this is the guy who has who has fought and wrestled with God, and yet God allowed him to live and blesses him, renames him, re reforms him, transforms him into the father of his nation so that he is no longer the person who only looks from, to himself, but now he looks to God. Jacob, the heel grabber, the schemer, the man who thinks he can do it himself is now brought to a new identity where he is the one who God blesses through the wrestling of his whole life. He's redefined by who God makes him to be. Wrestled God in prayer to be blessed. Because the same thing happens to us. 
that when we come to know who God is, we see that he defines us, that he gives us a new identity, that he gives us a new life in his son, Jesus Christ, and that forever changes us. And we're called to wrestle with God in prayer. Now, as I said, it's not a wrestling match physically with God, and it's not a wrestling match like we have to somehow grab God and make him pay attention to us, grab God and make him bless us. No, for that has already been won through us through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice and bringing us into God's family that we now, through Christ, are ushered into the throne room of grace and we're presented before God, and now God listens to us because, God, because Jesus intercedes for us moment by moment. That God now listens to us in our mumblings because the Holy Spirit speaks in words that we don't even know. And that through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we're brought before God and we, our prayers are heard by the Father and he responds. But now we're called to wrestle with God because we take our desires, our dreams, our lives, and we submit them to God. That God grabs hold of us, our dreams, our aspirations, what we want, our plans, and he submits them to his will. He submits them to his plan. He literally beats the hell out of them so that we are transformed more and more to become like Christ. And we're called to wrestle with God in that way, to bring all of who we are and allow God to submit it to his will. Allow God to submit it to his word. Allow God to actually change who we are fundamentally, down to the last Adam, as he redefines us not as a rebel, but as a worshiper. As he redefines us not as a sinner, but as a saint. That he redefines us not as fallen in Adam, but as a beloved son or daughter in Christ. That he redefines us, renames us, gives us a new identity, and we realize this all when we come and we submit to his word in prayer, that he changes us, and we're blessed through that change. We're blessed as he makes us who we want, what he wants us to be. Do you view prayer like that? Do you view prayer actually as coming before God and laying all of who you are before him and allowing him, being open to him, Submitting to his word to change us? How much would our life change if we realize that every moment when we go to the Lord in prayer, he grabs hold of us with his unrelenting grace and he makes us who he wants us to be. Wrestle God in prayer to be blessed. And this is a loving struggle. It's the struggle of a loving father who cares for us, who's bringing us in alignment with who he is. It's, ble it's really, it's, it's a blessed life if we can be obedient from the get-go and follow him. But so often, we're more like Jacob, who try to go our own way, and we need God to pull us back and submit us to his will. We struggle independently of God whom we believe and love and, and we struggle because we want to go our own way and do our own thing and do our own plan. We want to be part of God's plan, but we also have our own plans. And yet, but God loves us so much that he comes to us and he lays his hand upon us sometimes to the point of crippling us 
so that we know that he's in control and we're not, know that we cannot do it, but he can do it. And he brings us to the end of ourselves and the beginning of him. And it's in that time of grace when we realize we can't do it, that God changes us and makes us like his son. Because Jacob was changed from this encounter. He limped away from his meeting with God towards his meeting, his tense reunion with Esau, with a weakened body, but with strengthened faith. Having wrestled God, he knows that his prayers for what is going to happen with Esau are going to be answered. Having wrestled with God and knowing that God is with him, knowing that God has a hold of him, knowing that God has a plan for him, has renamed him, knowing all these things, he can now enter into a meeting with his brother confident in who is with him, and that is God. Knowing that God will be with him and loves him. It has a, he has a grip around him. As I said, this is a loving struggle. I love my kids most days. And there are some times when you have to hold your kids pretty tight for their own safety. Maybe you're, you're crossing a busy intersection, or maybe you know there's a, some danger lurking, or maybe you're going up to an edge of a cliff, or you're in that kind of thing, and you have to grab hold of your kids, and you hold them tight for their own safety and their own well-being. And sometimes these kids don't understand that, and so they struggle, and they might try to wrestle with you, but you grab them tight, and you hold them tight with love, knowing what is best for them. Because you're, and that's true with our Father, he grabs us, and we might try to wrestle against him because we think our way is better than his way, but he holds us tight, and he wrestles us into submission, and we should always know that even in the struggle, we are safer in the arms of our Father than on our own. Because we wrestle with God and with prayer in prayer because it's an invitation to receive his blessing for our life as he submits us to his word. So stay with the Father. Feel free to wrestle with the Father. He's going to win. Submit your will and your desires to his word, knowing that he has a plan for us. Don't let go of him until you understand what blessing awaits us as he submits us to his word, as he grows us in his ways. So wrestle with God in prayer to be blessed. Grab hold of him and pray to him and say, God, I bring all of who I am before you. Change me. Make me. Make me yours. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. We come before you as people unworthy of your love, and yet you love us. As people undeserving of your grace, and yet you pour 